And one of the things about God's Word is that it really pulls no punches as to the weaknesses and even the fate of some of its characters. And such is the case today. As we look at the end of John the Baptist, um, it is quite a humbling story. And in it, I think a lot of encouragement also for the believer. So let's read Mark 6, verse 14. It says, Now King Herod heard of him, him being Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said it is Elijah. And others said it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod, and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. <coughs> And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and, and commanded his head be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Father in heaven, as we look at this story, it is a sobering reminder. How are we to understand a story like this? As we encourage everyone that is in your word, that has come to you, hey, it will be okay. And sometimes, Lord, we know on this earth. Here, Lord, sometimes it doesn't seem like it's okay at all. And so we pray as only your spirit can do. As we admit in your presence that your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. We learn from the good and the bad and the ugly. And in all of these things, in all of these stories, in all of these accounts, your children are somehow edified, brought closer to you, brought closer to one another, 
made more effective by the power of your spirit to the watching world. So bless our time in your word together in Jesus' name. The owner of a black Veyron, please, uh, your lights are on outside. A black Veyron. Nobody here owns a black Veyron. A black Veyron is a Bugatti. It's a Bugatti, and this is a car that is worth $1.7 million. Oh, that's fine. And so that's why, most likely, as I make that announcement, Shut your car off. <laughs> a $1.7 million car. And, and I bring this to you because if somebody came to you with the keys of a black Veyron and they said, this is a gift, this is a gift we're giving you, you would most likely think, well, this gift is too good to be true. You'd be waiting for, you'd be waiting for somebody to come around with a hidden camera saying, okay, what's the joke? The joke. No, this is a gift. It's a gift that we're giving you, a black zero. But as they're leaving and you receive the gift, you say, well, you know, even if I'm going to turn around and sell it, it's worth accepting. Nobody here in their right mind would reject it. But they turn around and they say to you, there's one catch to this. It doesn't have an engine. It doesn't have an engine. Some of you, most likely most of you, would still say, you know what, it still will look pretty cool in my driveway, I still want it. But here you have this wonderful piece of machinery in your driveway, and it looks marvelous, it looks wonderful, but there's nothing inside. There's nothing inside. And if you can begin to understand that, you would say, but I, I find it hard to relate to that, Pastor. And that would be too crazy for something like that to happen. Well, don't worry. Because even if somebody gave you the Veyron with the engine, the oil change in it alone is twenty to $25,000. And all God's people said, wow. Okay, so let me give you an example that might hit a little more close to home. A few years ago, as I'm running on the treadmill that we had in our old home, I'm running and I'm listening to the inspirational music and I'm turning it up and I'm running just as fast as I can and, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's the Rocky soundtrack again uh, and as I'm running on this in the, on the back patio, I'm feeling really good about myself and I'm just turning it up, turning it up, turning it up. Finally, my wife comes onto the back patio and she says, what's burning? I said, it's me. I said, I'm rocking this thing and I'm just running and running. She goes, no, something's burning. And she looked down and I looked down because I don't have a sense of smell. And what happened was that the motor burnt out and there was smoke all over the back patio. I was like, okay. So what we did was we took the treadmill, we put it out on the front. Now it looked like everything was okay. It looked like the treadmill was okay. Somebody will pick this up, but we have to put a sign on it that says that there's no motor. So it doesn't work. I mean, it looks fine, but it doesn't work. Listen, to those that are created in the image of God, you're created in the image of God. That's an amazing thing. No other creature, nothing else created can boast that they've been made in the image of God. But here's the thing. Without having come to the cross, having been separated from God, it says the best of what we do, the best of our works are like filthy rags before God. 
And so, in order to be the thing that the human being was made to be, we need the presence of God in us through Jesus Christ. But here's the other part of this for the Christian. It's like so many are living the powerless Christian life. The powerless Christian life. And when I say that, it doesn't sound too appetizing. It doesn't say, it doesn't sound too attractive. The power, how many of you here want to live the powerless Christian life? Oh, let me do that. But yet, most of the church today is living the powerless Christian life. I heard in a recent message that it said of the church in America that when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, we are 3,000 miles wide and a half an inch deep. And we're missing the power of the Holy Spirit in the church today. Why? Because there are extremes in the church today. There are extremes where some of the gifts are focused on and celebrated, and there's an emotionalism that takes over. And then on the other end of the spectrum, what you have are people that deny the gifts altogether and say all we need is the Word. One of the things that I always appreciated about the teachings of Pastor Chuck from Calvary was that they seem to walk in the middle. They believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in the power of the Word. But there is the power of the Holy Spirit. And what the power of the Holy Spirit does, well, it changes and inspires someone to access the fruit of the Spirit, which is the love and the joy and the peace. And it also burns and ignites passions in our heart. When a man is filled with the Holy Spirit, well, there are passions that you didn't even know that you had. And the developing of gifts you never even thought that you could possibly use. And then he gives you opportunities. And so as I talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, we sit here today and we say, well, I need that. I wonder if I'm experiencing it in my life. No, you don't have to wonder if you're experiencing it in your life. God desires you to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. He desires the Christian, the child of God, to experience the fruit of the Spirit, to receive the gifts of the Spirit, and to go out of these doors in the power of the Spirit. And that's why today's message is so important. See, the book Luke Chapter 1, verse 15, and you don't have to turn there, tells us that there was a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was inside his mother's womb. As a matter of fact, when the baby heard the name Jesus, it says he leapt inside his mother's womb. This makes what happened in New York this week that much more challenging for the church and that much more upsetting and actually devastating. And yes, we will go there. But John the Baptist was a man filled with the Spirit from the time of his birth. And as we look at this account of the end of his ministry and the end of his life, we're going to track these certain events and we're going to get some powerful lessons as to what it means to have the Spirit of God. To be indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's start at verse 14 and we're going to start working our way through of chapter 6. And it says, Now King Herod heard of him. And most of the time when you see him capitalized in the middle of a sentence, that means Jesus. For his name had become well known 
And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said it is Elijah, and others said it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. Stop right there. What are we seeing on Herod's part? Confusion. What's going on here? I thought John had been put to death, and now I'm, I'm seeing Jesus, and I'm not understanding the way that this whole thing is playing out. I thought that I had silenced the voice, but now obviously he's back, and now Herod is afraid, he's confused, and the other people are saying, no, 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 it's Elijah. And the other folks are saying it's the prophet, or like one of the prophets. They'd heard about Jesus, but they didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand what he was doing because it had not been given to him. And so the people were fearful, and they were confused, and they rushed to judgments, and they tried to figure it out. They tried to figure it out. But the people that had been given to understand who Jesus was, that was something that was given to them by God. It was a gift that had been given to them. But everybody else was sitting there just trying to figure out what is going on. And it brings us to the first point. And the first point today of six is taken directly from Scripture. The first point is, it's a Bible verse. It's 1 Corinthians 2.14. And it reads like this. The man without the Spirit will not understand the things that come from the Spirit. The end of the verse says, because they're foolishness to him. The man without the Spirit will not understand the things that come from the Spirit. And that seems pretty reasonable. Herod's sitting there, and this is a work of God. John the Baptist was sent from God. Jesus was God, and he was walking the earth, and yet these people are utterly confused because the man without the Spirit does not understand the things that come from the Spirit of God. Now that verse in 1 Corinthians 2.14, let me point out to you that it was written by a man named Paul. Paul knew what it was like to listen, to be religious, but to be religious without the Spirit of God. Paul was persecuting the church. More perhaps than anyone in history up to that moment, Paul was persecuting the church, but he was religious, but he did not have the Spirit. So often, religion can be the enemy of the relational spirit that God has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But here's what happened. When Saul was converted, the scales fell from his eyes, and the Bible said he then had the Spirit, and he was starting to see things through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Listen. The man without the Spirit cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit. And here's why the best of our works without the Spirit are like filthy rags. Here's why. And it'll make sense as soon as I say it. Because the church is called to be the hands and feet of Christ. Correct? You've heard that before, right? Yeah. It's very cliche. We're supposed to be the hands and feet. Why are we not being the hands and feet? But you can never ever be the hands and feet unless you have the heart, the eyes, and the ears of Jesus. And that's given by the Spirit. Does that make sense? So the man without the Spirit is not going to understand the things that come from the Spirit, and so he's not going to be able to react. Now listen, years ago, I think it was back in 2012, scientists found what they call the Higgs boson particle, and they believe that this particular particle held the key to understanding the origins of the universe. This was back in 2012. It was called the Higgs boson particle, and there was celebration, and the man that discovered it won, the, uh, won I think, either the Pulitzer Prize, um, 
He won something that was significant. I don't know what he won, but he won something. Um, but he sat there. He made this discovery of the Higgs boson particle. But the question arose, well, where did the particle come from? So they renamed it. You know what it's called? The God particle. Because you're trying to figure out the origin of the universe, and you're trying to figure it out apart from God, and it doesn't make sense. Now listen, because this will make sense, what I'm about to say. When we say the man without the Spirit will not understand the things that come from the Spirit, because they're foolishness to him, when we say that, understand this. If you don't understand the origin, that you were made, and that you were made with a purpose, then you won't understand the purpose of the whole thing. And if you don't understand the purpose of the whole thing, you won't understand your personal purpose. You can't. It's impossible. You'll look at world events and you'll just be baffled and heartbroken and confused as you see the terrible things that are happening in the world and you're saying, what is this? Well, the Bible tells us that things are going to play out exactly the way things are playing out. In Scripture, it tells us things are going to get more chaotic. It tells us things are going to get more immoral. Things are going to get more ugly out there. They're going to only get uglier. And yet amidst this, the Bible tells us about God, that He is the author of life. And what happens is this, is that as He reveals Himself to you, He reveals Himself to you, you begin to see the purpose of it all, and you begin, as you delight yourself in Him, to find your purpose. But the man without the Spirit, listen, I don't care how much promotion you get, I don't care how much money you make, I don't care how much fame you attain, it is all for naught. Because you can make it to the top of your field, and if you do it without God, it means nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So the people are greatly confused. Because they don't understand. Herod's conjecturing, well, you know, it's John the Baptist reincarnate. The other people saying it's the prophets or somebody that's like a prophet. To me, there's nothing more heartbreaking than seeing somebody that is just out there trying to find their way to do it without God. And yet this truth holds true. The man without the Spirit will not understand the things that come from the Spirit. But if that's true, then here's what we can do on that verse. We can kind of reverse the verse, if you will. And we can say this. The man with the Spirit will understand the things that come from the Spirit because they're wisdom to him. You see, if the first holds true, the second must. If the man without the Spirit doesn't understand the things that come from the Spirit because they're foolishness, well, then the other part must hold true also, that the man with the Spirit will understand the things that come from the Spirit because they're wisdom. They're wisdom. And yet we have so many factors that are trying to pull us away from the truth, even as Jesus is sitting there at the end, Pilate having been influenced by those of the... Pilate was in the worst place possible because he was middle management. Pilate was in a terrible position. He had those above him pulling at him. He had the Jewish people pulling at him, his constituent. His wife was like, don't mess with this dude. And so he looks at Jesus and he says, at the end, he says, what is truth? When you've got Jesus 
standing there right in front of you. How many of you have had those moments where you're like, you know what, God was there and I just missed it. I missed it. God was in my midst. He was doing something mighty. He was doing something powerful. But because I wasn't in the Spirit, I missed it. The man without the Spirit will not understand the things that come from the Spirit. But back to our passage. As they're offering their ideas of what's happening, Verse 16 reads like this, it says, But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Stop right there. It is a common misconception that John the Baptist was thrown in prison for simply preaching the gospel. But according to the passage, according to what we read, that's not necessarily true. Was he preaching the gospel? Yeah. Yes. He was preaching a message that said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. How was he calling the people to repentance? Perhaps it looked something like this. Folks, we are going to miss the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand, and we're going to miss it because of the immorality of the world. Look at the immorality of your leaders. Look at the immorality of Herod, who's taken his brother's wife. John did not hold back anything. Tell us how you really feel, John, about all the things that are happening and about what's going on. And John was looking at the behavior, the immorality between Herod and Herodias, and he was like, this is filthy. We need to repent. If you're going to have any chance of seeing God, you have to turn from the one life and you have to receive the other life. But well, we can't find any application to this today for the Christian. The position that John was in, I am the last person from the blessing of this pulpit to be Republican or Democrat or to, to force political views on anyone. But here is the thing. When something that happens that is blatantly disregarding the sanctity of life as what happened in New York recently, then there is outrage that the church speaks against. And we speak about it in love, yes, but unapologetically. Why? Because our leaders need to repent. The country needs to repent. Perhaps we've come to a place where, you know what, if laws like this are going to be passed, we need to stop asking, God bless the USA, and God please have mercy on the USA. And I say this in all truth. John the Baptist did not get thrown in prison, and as it turns out, it was part of God's plan that here he was speaking out against Herod and Herodias, and he was thrown in prison. Now, John recognized it when it happened as being part of God's plan. He recognized it. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. So how is, going to, how is he going to decrease? Well, he was removed from the picture. And this was part of God's plan. But it brings us to our second point, that the man with the Spirit can speak and should speak and act in a way that is consistent with the Holy Spirit. When John was speaking out against Herod and Herodias, and when the church cries out, it should be in a way that is consistent with God's Word and in a way that is consistent with the things of the Holy Spirit. Certainly you know this, that if you have the Holy Spirit in you and you've experienced this, 
Perhaps there are times, and maybe it's just the pastor that experienced it and nobody else here, when you said something, something came out of your mouth, and you're like, that is definitely not from the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Right? You said something, and you're like, this is definitely not from Jesus. All right, it happens. Guess what? It even happens up here. And as soon as I do it, it's like God just, boom. What are you talking about? You're here to deliver my word. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Because you have the Spirit. See, the man with the Spirit can not only recognize the world for what it is, see it for what it is, but respond in the way that we're supposed to because God has given us the power of His Holy Spirit inside of us so that we can talk and act and think in a way that is consistent with the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible tells us to take every thought into captivity. So how do you know if what you're saying is from the Holy Spirit or not? I'll give you a hint. It's in the name. It's the Holy Spirit. Is what's coming out of your mouth for the edification? Or is it the correction? Or for doctrine? We're supposed to be talking to each other in the church with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, it doesn't mean that as we're walking in the mall, hey, Michael, uh, John 3.16, and Michael goes back, hey, John, Ephesians 3.20, oh, Philippians 4.19, brother, and then we're talking to each other. Nobody has any idea what we're talking about. That's not what it means. Sometimes we speak in the religious jargon of the church. People don't understand. What it does mean is this, is that our words are to be seasoned. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. Why? Because the world can be somewhat bland and definitely tasteless. And the world is dark. You're called to be salt and light. And we are called to do it because we have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. How do we grow in our understanding of this and our, our ability to respond? Well, before there was Pastor John, there was actor John. He wasn't very good. Um, he wasn't. <laughs> well, here's one of the things that I appreciated about acting. When they gave you a role, especially if it was a role that you were studying as somebody that existed or somebody that was in existence, what we would do is we could spend time with that person. Okay? So a lot of actors that are going to play the role of somebody on film if they get to spend time with them, what they do is they learn how they speak. They learn how they eat. So this is how this one would pick up a fork. I pick up my fork like this, but this is how they pick up their fork. This is how they put the food in their mouth. This is how they respond to certain situations. Well, here's what the Bible has given you. It has given you the character study of character studies on Jesus Christ. It has given you four books, the Gospels, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And when we study them, what we're learning is the character of Christ. So when we get into a situation, it would be, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? How would Jesus drive? <laughs> and all God's people said, ouch. Not even. <laughs> okay. But here, this is why we're called... <laughs> Sorry. This is why we're called to take every thought into captivity. We're called to take every thought into captivity because a lot of the times the things that come from our mouth are not from the Holy Spirit. But yet the man with the Spirit has the ability to speak and act in a way consistent with the Spirit. And that's what John was doing. 
John was a man that was in the Spirit. And so what he said came from the Spirit. And there wasn't a doubt about that, except for perhaps the consequences of having done that. He was a man that had deprived himself of the things that we consider to be pleasurable, the way he dressed, the way he ate. You remember he, he, he was in the wilderness and he was eating locusts and honey. And if you want to know what that was like, if you go to the South Florida Fair, I would challenge you. They have those chocolate-covered scorpions. Have you tried those? They're crunchy and delicious. No, they're not really good. They don't taste good at all. They're, they're terrible. But the point is this, is that no matter how much honey you put on a locust, it ain't going to help it out. Okay? And the real point is this, is that John had denied himself the things of this world because he was living for the things of the Spirit. And the closer we are to the things of the Spirit, the more we're going to respond in the Spirit and with the Spirit of God. But here's the thing. When it comes to John the Baptist, as in the Spirit as he was, when he's arrested, we see something happens. And for that, what I want to do is I want to ask you to please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew 11, just for a moment. Keep your place in Mark. And it says here, now it came to pass, this is Matthew 11, verse 1, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? What? What happened? John the Baptist, if anybody, he was the first one to recognize Jesus. Without even having met him, when he saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What happened to John the Baptist? What happened to John the Baptist is something that happens pretty much to every Christian, believe it or not. And it's our third point. And it goes like this. The man with the Spirit may have seasons of doubt and struggle. Let me change that. The man with the Spirit will have seasons of doubt and seasons of struggle. Can you imagine John sitting there, you know what, I gave my whole life to this cause. I gave everything I have, all that I was, and I'm sitting in a prison cell, and yes, I understand, I heard that he can calm storms, I've heard that he can uh, feed multitudes, I've heard that he can do these things. But at the end of the day, are you or are you not? Because it looks like we're losing. Jesus, step up. Do something. It looks like the good guys are losing. It looks like the religious leaders are succeeding. It looks like the Roman government is more powerful than you are. And what's happened is, is that the situation has, be, has started to become a bit greater than is God. Jesus is it you or is it not? Romans 7. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there for time's sake, but I'll turn there because these are verses that I think every single one of us here can relate to. When Paul the Apostle is writing in Romans 7, it reads like this. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. This is verse 15. 
For what I want to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I do. Can you get it, right? There's confusion. There's Paul saying, okay, well, when I'm in the Spirit, uh, I'm having this battle because the things of the flesh, I kind of feel like I'm being pulled this way, I'm being pulled this way, I'm being pulled this way, and maybe that explains your life. One day you're feeling, hey, I am on fire for Jesus. Bible study, I love listening to the Word, I love singing, and one day it's like, am I even saved? And what am I doing here at all? You see, if you have ever experienced that, then it's called out in Scripture. Scripture identifies with you. It identifies with the struggle between the things of the Spirit and the things of the flesh. John the Baptist was experiencing a moment where he's like, what did I do this all for? Has my whole life been a farce? Jesus, is it you? Is it not you? I mean, what is this? Mother Teresa of Calcutta, known as a woman of faith and self-sacrifice and service to the poor and sick, She had a book of letters printed out after her death revealed that even she struggled with doubt at times. The letters showed a different woman than the symbol of Christian love and unwavering faith that much of the media portrayed her as. She frequently wrote of loneliness, not hearing from God, personal hypocrisy, and doubts about her own faith. She wrote this, Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason, the place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. The tortured pain I can't explain. That was Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation. Luther, it says, along with his legacy of being a reformer and a father of Protestantism, Martin Luther is also remembered for a less grand and much more relatable trait, doubt. Luther's primary doubts about faith didn't necessarily rest on the question of God's existence, but his character. Though his fear that his own sinfulness would separate him from God helped lead to then-radical ideas about salvation outside of man's own ability to be righteous, doubts about his faith, thinking in relationship with God, would haunt him later in life. At one point, the crushing doubt in his calling led to such an intense depression that he wrote, Listen, for more than a week... I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. Martin Luther. One day as Luther came home from his teaching, his wife was sitting there dressed in black. And Luther looked at her and he said, Who died? He responded to her. She responded to him. Obviously, God did the way you're acting, Martin. Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, how about Charles Spurgeon? One of history's greatest preachers, 
Spurgeon was not only a master of communicating deep truth of Scripture, but also of engaging with his audience and relating their struggles. In his sermon, Desire of the Soul in Spiritual Darkness, he bluntly claimed, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, Ah, poor soul, I am afraid you are not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as even if to say it is too good to be true. You get the point. Man and woman with the Spirit, you are not exempt from doubt and struggle as John was not. You're not alone. But I want you to listen to how Jesus responds to John's doubt and struggle. When John's disciples went to Jesus and they asked him that question, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Stop right there. So how does Jesus encourage John's heart? What is Jesus' answer? Now, we don't know how John responds. We're not told that John's like, oh, okay, that's cool. All right, I feel better now. We're not told that. So how does John respond? That's not important. What is important is that when Jesus hears of John's discouragement, what he sends back to him. A care package full of ice cream? No. Coffee? No. The power of positive thinking? No. No. What he sends back to him is the truth. God's truth that never returns unto him void. He says, listen, encourage John's heart with this truth. Scripture's being fulfilled. The blind are seeing. The lame are walking. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. How is he being encouraged? This brings us to the fourth point. The man in the spirit and struggling can only truly be strengthened Listen, by the things of the Spirit. That's the way you're going to truly satisfy the heart of the struggling man or woman of God is to encourage them from Scripture. And it doesn't mean you're going to send them a Bible verse and all of a sudden they're going to be like, well, I'm no longer depressed. I don't want to kill myself anymore. No, and it doesn't work like that. But God's Word never returns to Him void. So you keep pouring God's Word and the things of the Spirit. Remind them, this is what Jesus did, remind John of what I'm doing. Remind somebody of all the great things God has done. Remind someone of the great things God has done in their life. And understand this, is that the reason we struggle with doubt and disbelief is because we're leaky vessels that have a need for a fresh filling of the Spirit of God. So if you see someone, a brother or sister in Christ struggling them, Give them the word. Remind them of what God is doing. Remind them of what God has done. 
Pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit. Take them around the shoulder like this and pray and lay hands on them. Listen, you do not have to be a pastor to lay hands on someone. Ask Ananias. Ananias was told in the book of Acts to go lay hands on a man named Saul of Tarsus. Ananias said, what? Saul of Tarsus? Do you know who he is? God's like, yeah, I remember the hairs on his head. I know exactly who he is. I know what he's done. But go lay hands on him. And when Ananias laid hands on him and he prayed for him, what happened? The scales fell from his eyes and he was filled with the Spirit. Pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit over those that you see struggling because we're leaky. We're leaky vessels. Listen, when you come to repentance and Jesus is the Lord of your heart and the Lord of your life, I want you to understand this. The Holy Spirit is in you. You belong to God. The Spirit of Christ is in you. But it's one thing to have Him in you. It's another thing to have Him flowing out of you flown in and through you and out of you for good works that you've been created to do before time began. And so if you want to encourage somebody that's struggling in the Spirit, give them the things of the Spirit. Pray the armor of God over them as we talked about last week. Pray the fruit of the Spirit. Pray for the fresh baptism of God's Spirit over the struggling brother or sister in Christ. Gang, listen. We are so quick to jump on somebody's stuff when we see them struggling. Have you found yourself doing that sometimes? We jump all over someone because we see them struggling. We judge them. We talk about them. We do this. Listen, let it become a reflex for the church of Jesus Christ. If that's a brother or sister in Christ that's struggling, pray. Meet them where they're at. Pray for them. Pray for the filling of God's Spirit. Look at your own life first to see if the things that are missing in them that you see are missing in you first, though. And then pull them aside and pray. Don't say, hey, I'll pray for you. Don't do that. Unless you're going to do it. It's better if you have the opportunity, the moment, wherever you're at, to pull them aside and pray for them. When things start going south, don't start getting in the flesh. Start getting in the Spirit and bring them along and lead them in the things of the Holy Spirit. That's what will truly encourage the heart of a struggling brother or sister in Christ because that Spirit is available. But it gets crunched so easily. So easily. Let's go back over to Mark and we're going to come to a close. But first, so now you have, so now you have been encouraged in the Spirit. We've got our points, okay? The man without the Spirit doesn't understand the things that come from the Spirit. Understand the things that come from the Spirit. The man that has the Spirit can speak and act in a way consistent with the Spirit. We're going to struggle. And how to encourage those when they're struggling, we've seen all that, but now John gets the word of encouragement. We're back in Mark chapter 6, verse 19. And I'd love to say that everybody lives happily ever after. Verse 19 says this, Therefore Herodias held it against him, wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came. When Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, 
The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. We're going to expound on that next week. But I want to close you with this point today. I want to focus on Herod for one moment. Because Herod's doing what so many of us are trying to do. Herod's trying to please both worlds. Can you see that? He feared John. John was a holy and just man, and so there was a strong of the things of the Spirit. But now, in an opportune time, it says, Herodias, who had been looking to kill John, she was going to seize that moment. Think of this for a moment. At one point, you have to make a choice as to the voices that are going on in here and here. And you have to make a decision as to where you stand. Gail Orwin said it like this, know who you belong to. Know who you belong to. See, Herod thought, okay, well, I could probably pacify Herodias if I just put him in prison. I'll put him in prison. They'll stop publicly demeaning us, and they'll stop publicly outcrying against us, and I'll be fine, but I'll, I'll put John in prison. I'll please her. I'll get to hear him, and he's trying to live in both worlds, and you can't. The man in the Spirit, the man with the Spirit, cannot live in both places. And that's why Joshua told the children of Israel as he stood before them, knowing very well the choice that they would make. He said, choose ye this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If something has hindered you from that service of the Lord, what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song right now. 